0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you all hear from deliver that inspiration. Today, we speak with Warren Logan, who sits in the mayor's office of the city of Oakland, California, as the director of mobility and interagency relations. Warren's work pushes for equitable living conditions, safer streets, and sustainable transportation. And our conversation today touches on all of those. I guarantee Warren will make you think differently about how we use urban land, the equity trade-offs we make without even realizing it, and the ideal city of 2035. Please enjoy this conversation with Warren Logan. Hey Warren, really excited to connect today and discuss some topics that I think are not only relevant for local government, but ones that probably don't get the airtime that they should. To start with, would love to get a bit of a, a read on your background. I read in an interview with you that you love meeting new people, understanding what their stories are, and what makes us connected both socially and physically. To me, that kind of begs the question though, why specifically local government? and Why not journalism or social work?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I, I think that, for one, I think that local government offers this really great opportunity to balance the entire city's needs, right? Like, I, I think that part of what I enjoy so much is the scale of the opportunities that I'm working on. The other thing, too, is that local government touches so many different aspects of, of people's lives, especially in terms of, of transportation. So, you know, before I was at the city of Oakland, I helped manage uh, shared mobility and policy about autonomous vehicles or scooters, right? Like, before that, I helped manage, like, transit planning and designing streets. And, and, and obviously, those are two very different subjects, but they're still all part of city and local government and, you know, especially transportation planning.
0: You said, and you're totally correct, that your city government touches so many different facets of our lives. Are there any that spring to mind that probably your average resident, your average citizen doesn't actually know that the city or the local government's responsible for, but is actually uh, a huge area of responsibility?
1: Most people do not know what city planners do generally. I also think that most people don't know that their local government probably has one of the greater impacts on their lives, even more so than the county, regional, state, or federal government. And it's funny, in fact, working for the mayor's office, as I do now, when there are you know major federal elections, people focus so much on what their president can do for them, and I don't want to take away from the impact that they, that they certainly can have on people's lives. But right down to the choices you have for where to live, the choices you have for how to get to work, and in fact your ability to get both to work, to your friends, to the places you enjoy throughout the day, all of that is local decision making at the end of the day. And I don't know if people fully understand the scale at which these decisions are actually happening right here at
0: the local level. And being involved in that decision making is critical for your average Joe out on the street, yet it's something that probably only a fraction of us are actually involved in actively. Why do you think local governments have such a challenge engaging most of their residents around these types of issues which are going to make a huge impact on these people's quality of life? Yeah that's a good
1: question Jack and I I think about this all the time like for people like myself that have so much impact on people's lives you would have expected that my door would be busted down every day with people trying to talk with me about what they need in their community or even for themselves. I think part of the issue is that kind of circling back to your earlier point, people don't know the impact that they truly can have on local decision-making. That's issue one. The second is that the government, and I think this is kind of where I've made a lot of inroads in my career, I think a lot of people don't understand how to get our attention. And by extension, I don't think the government is set up generally to engage with everyday people. We are set up as you know, representative government, to flow individual ideas up to your council member, your council member to the whole council, and then by extension to the mayor's office, etc. But there's, there is a very big distance often between organizations that I supervise and the projects I work on, and often the everyday person. And, and trying to bring those two things together and reduce that distance is a core focus of my career's work.
0: The, the ideal of government is that, you know, the regular individual shouldn't even really have to go and ballot or petition their government on a regular basis, right? That's the whole idea of elected governance is that we elect people that go and put forth our best interests um, organically. In your experience, how much of a difference do the elected officials make in you carrying out your job? How much of the policy strategy direction actually flows down from the elected officials Versus random noise that comes across your desk from private interest, from corporate interest, from whatever.
1: Our outstanding goal is to make sure that we're making like data-driven decisions that are ideally, in the case of Oakland, advancing racial equity. And so, while I don't want to necessarily say that we're trying to filter out noise because it's you know everyone has a voice that should be heard. At the same time, I think that there are lots of there are specific groups of people and types of people that are very good at gaining the here of the mayor's office or a council member and and what that ends up meaning is that they are able to kind of push out the smaller voices that are probably the most challenged lives or, or people who need the most help and so a, a big a big portion of my goal is to try and find those those voices and elevate them and to create structures that really elevate those voices so you know on one hand I think that it's important to have community leaders and specifically government leaders that have an agenda to push a vision for how the city can operate, right? Like at one point, there was a vision that said, we should have freeways everywhere. And, th- and that had an impact on people's lives, both positive and negative. And, and now, I think in the case of my mayor, Mayor Schaff, and then by extension, lots of mayors across the country, were having a vision towards more sustainable modes of transportation that support people of all income strata. So I think that there's a a play between both uh, a policy or excuse me, a a policy leader's vision for an ideal future that is both their own and based on new voices coming to the table and elevated through, you know, the conversations that I get to have every day uh, with people who live in each of these neighborhoods in Oakland or across the Bay Area.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how some of these modalities may have changed in the past year or so? I know you guys at Oakland are doing some really innovative stuff around planning and street design. Would you mind touching on that? You know, it's funny. I
1: I think that a lot of folks have asked me, and and in some ways you just did, these new modalities. and, And I often push back and say people have been taking the bus for a very, very long time. People have been riding bicycles for a very, very long time. In fact probably longer than people have been driving and it is the difference that we're dealing with now is that we're finally paying attention to everybody else for starters right the the folks who've said i've been biking my entire life and i've never felt like anyone's listened to me that's that's the first issue the second is that we're starting to recognize the and i think this is an important characteristic we are starting to recognize the impacts that these types of modes have on both the local air quality, water quality, you name it, the environment, and then by extension, the broader global greenhouse gas emissions. That if we are truly taking both climate change seriously and equity, you start to recognize that people driving alone every day, long distances, is not going to meet either of those goals, whether that's reducing greenhouse gas emissions or supporting people of different socioeconomic and racial demographics, across the city or even across the world. And so what that looks like is starting, obviously, with listening to people's everyday stories, but then making sure that the physical space on our roads is supporting and better yet prioritizing the types of modes that, whether it's bicycling or or mass transit or even walking, supporting those types of modes that are able to reduce our impact on the environment, on the air quality and are are lifting up and even rebalancing people's access to high resource areas. The other component, though, that I want to just shed light on is that even though I'm known as a transportation planner, a big portion of my work is advocating for affordable housing near jobs and near mass transit. Because at the end of the day, I feel like my job as, as a transportation planner and as a policy expert in transportation is to make up for the, I think, missteps that we often have when it comes to land use planning. And especially in California, where I feel, and a lot of people would agree, we have not built enough housing in the places where people need it most. And now we are trying to commute people from farther and farther away suburbs back to a central core where jobs and other resources are located.
0: What has traditionally been the driver of that urban sprawl? why are we building cities in the way that we're building them? Why do we have such an aversion to potentially more efficient high density housing in our urban cores? Uh, How much time do you have?
1: Uh, (laughs) I will, I will split my answer into two big pieces. One, um, you know, in the history of like Euclidean zoning, it was primarily to help people disconnect from the factories, right? Like it used to be that the downtown centers were the factories and If you were able to, if you were wealthy enough to not live next to the high impact areas that, you know, are spewing out black coal into your lungs, you wanted that, right? Like, originally, our goal was to get people farther away from industry. As industry has changed, though, the reason people like suburbs, and I'm speaking sort of generally here, but a major push for why people are spreading out and moving away from downtown cores was racism, People didn't want to live near other people that didn't look like them, didn't act like them, didn't sound like them. And when you look across the United States, the history of redlining is one of the prevailing reasons why people moved farther and farther away. The other part within that, of course, is school districts, right? People split up cities and created new cities to essentially segregate their school districts from one another. And part of the effort that we're all sort of trending towards is bringing folks back together, not only from a, from a climate standpoint, right? Like to reduce our impacts on the the air quality, et cetera, but that we also have to reconcile the, the more social aspects of the reasons we were spread apart in the first place. And, and that is something that I don't have a degree in, but I recognize that it is, it is a focal point of a lot of the work that I, I work on.
0: Have you noticed improvements in any of these aspects in the past year Um, and are any of them, do you think, here to stay or do we risk sliding back into some of those more traditional and potentially static patterns of the past once we immediately open up again?
1: I think that we've made a lot of gains And, and cities like Oakland, you know, we're not, I think we're unique in that we were first for a lot of these but I don't think we're unique in that so many cities across the country and even across the globe have started taking more seriously the idea that maybe every street shouldn't be for cars. Like, I think I think that's awesome, right? The idea that almost overnight we were able to close, so to speak, a significant number of major roads throughout, you know, each of our neighborhoods in Oakland and, you know, across the Bay Area so that people and really families and young kids felt safe enough to play in the street like that's a big deal Uh, and it is something that even as i was evaluating before the pandemic i didn't think it was necessarily possible second to that you know we've made some huge gains in and rethinking the value of public parking as the the paragon of of curb use, right? and and to now see businesses using that space for outdoor dining is phenomenal. One of the aspects though, that I am concerned about is as more people are working from home, we might be seeing people driving more. and we need to figure out why that is. I think in part, it's direct relationship to the fact that, and this goes back to my land use point earlier, that there are a lot of people who origin you know that currently live in suburbs and if they are not commuting to central cities, they still have to go significant distances for a lot of other resources that they would have otherwise chained together. And and so I'll give you a, a good example. Imagine that you live in a suburb and on your way home from work, you go to the grocery store. And at the same time, on your way home, you pick up your kids and on your way home, you run a couple of errands. That's called trip chaining, right? Well, if you're not making that outset trip to go to work and instead you have, I guess, disaggregated each of those errands that otherwise would have been on the same journey, you are now actually making more trips in your car from home to the grocery store and then back home, from home to pick up your kids and then back home, from home to the errands and then back home again. And each one of those ends up adding more miles on a roadway in cars. And so my hope is that we don't take for granted the fact that, that we need to continue pressuring, I guess, and really planning for cities that offer resources where people need them. And I, and I mean, specifically, there are plenty of low-income neighborhoods and POC neighborhoods that don't have a grocery store, right? So what do these people do? They drive really long distances just to get basic food for their kids, right? And that is true for a lot of other types of resources too, whether that's clinics, whether that's green space, you name it.
0: Really interesting point. So is part of the solution bringing people's housing closer to those day-to-day amenities that they need? Or is it about creating those transportation chains that are potentially more sustainable, more efficient, whatever it might be, or a combination of the both? How do we solve this problem? I think it's both. Um,
1: You know, if I could wave a magic wand, you know, at which is more important, I think that the land use is more important. Like you can't, especially from a cost standpoint it is very expensive to build subway lines across an entire region. And I think, and a lot of people would agree because it's math, I suppose, it is cheaper and more effective to build affordable, dense housing near resources on major trunk line routes instead of having to build a lot of disaggregate transit and other types of infrastructure routes to get people to a lot of different places. The, the more streamlined the locations, the better. And I, I apologize, I feel like I'm, I'm giving you a, a land use planning 101 right now.
0: <laughs> Not at all. So if we look 15, 20 years in the future at Warren Logan's ideal city, how are most people getting around? What does life look like?
1: I think it depends on the type of trip you're making. And, and I will take a quick aside to say that one of the major criticisms I've received in probably my career... Is that I'm trying to ban cars, that I that I'm unaware of the need for people to make certain types of trips using a car. And that's that's not true. I, I understand why cars exist. So with that, I will share though that that I hope that people are in an environment on which in which you know they, they live in a neighborhood where their streets are one, and perhaps most importantly, safe enough for them to use that street other than just driving. And and that is, and I don't mean that sarcastically, I mean truly that people feel safe again to let their kids play in the yard, play out on the street, and that the speeds on those roads and the traffic on those roads is the kind that is safe enough to cohabitate with all these other types of uses. The second, though, is that ultimately, I hope we are building more affordable housing, again, next to, in our case in the Bay Area, next to BART stations and major bus rapid transit lines, so that people have better access to the downtown neighborhoods that have jobs, and vice versa, right? The final piece, though, is that, and I think this is what we're going to see in the next 15 years, especially because I know how long it takes to build some of these things. But in the next 15 years, I think that we're going to see and continue to see a major growth in bicycle routes. And that's something that I, I think a lot of people learned during the pandemic as well, is that you can get around by bicycle pretty well, especially in flat neighborhoods. And an electric bike is a game changer, right? Like speaking for myself, I I bought an electric bike during the pandemic and I was able to realize even for myself that I can get across Oakland in about 20 to 25 minutes. And that's kind of crazy on an e-bike, right? But that takes infrastructure and it, it takes safe, protected bikeways That are relatively straightforward to build and to plan for, but it takes really, and this is the hurdle for that kind of a conversation between now and the fifteen-year future that I'm imagining, some trade-offs that I don't think people are willing to make happily about the use of our roadway and and the space that we are allocating to different modes of travel. And that's that is probably one of the greater barriers I see between now and this ideal future where people are able to commute with different modes reduce their impact on the environment and have safer streets where people can kind of play outdoors at the same time.
0: And what's driving that criticism or that opposition? If you ask most people from a value or principle basis, they'd say, sure, you know, we want safer streets. We want the ability to for our kids to play outside or to bike with more safety. Yet when it comes to the quote unquote ballot box they may be in opposition to some of those more progressive measures. So what is it inside people's heads that's kind of preventing them going full force behind these types of initiatives?
1: I think there are a couple of reasons here from the outset, there's one group of people. And I think that these overlap a bit. One group of people will push against what ostensibly they would otherwise say they agree with, which is like bike lanes or wire sidewalks, you name it. But if they feel like it is coming at the cost of their personal comfort And the time it takes for them to get from one place to another, they will push against it. The number of times people have said, but what about my need to drive on this street? You're going to make this street harder for me to drive on. It's going to take me longer to get to work, to get to my friends, et cetera. And therefore, I couldn't possibly agree with this strategy. The second group, and again, this is an overlap, is that there are a number of people, especially and sadly, I think sort of tragically, communities of color that push against more sustainable modes of travel because they feel that it it can be a harbinger of gentrification. And by that, I mean both sort of initially the social displacement of different people who don't look like me and by extension, who may in fact buy homes or rent in my neighborhood and thus drive up the cost and ultimately drive me out of my home. And when you combine both of those things together and return kind of to my original point about the historic redlining that occurred not even that long ago in the United States and sort of continues to this day, even more covertly, I can understand why there are large swaths of people who might push back against something as simple as a bike lane in their neighborhood, because they feel in in concert that I've already been pushed to this faraway neighborhood that is with lack of resources, right? I'm not near any of my jobs and either I'm so low income that I have to take the bus, which doesn't come frequently enough and is not well-funded, right? And now this is the last thing that's going to be the, the death knell for my limited ability to thrive in place. And, the, and there's just so much we have to do to, to address that. It can't be just as simple as fixing the stripes on our streets It has to include, again, whole-scale investments in a number of other areas that that I don't control, but I'm happy to work with other partners to do. But I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like, why is it that people push against things that on paper they might otherwise support? And it's just to wrap up here, like a combination of, but what about my needs and... Does this mean that someone like me isn't welcomed in this neighborhood because I have attributed this type of modality to a different class or race of person, even if the data suggests otherwise?
0: Having spent uh, quite a bit of time in New York City and seeing what's essentially happened to Harlem and Bed-Stuy in the past few years where uh, existing communities that have been in those areas for decades are having to move further and further out, what is the solution on the city's level when house prices are increasing, uh, you know, oftentimes due to factors that the city itself may not have any real control over, especially at the larger end of the scale, larger cities like Oakland, like New York? What can cities do uh, to ensure that those communities that don't have the ability to potentially uh, continue paying exorbitant rents still have a place to live and don't end up on the street, which is unfortunately something we're seeing more and more uh, in California? Yeah.
1: It's so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, break apart your question a little bit because I think that the solutions was for very convoluted. How to Yeah, no, no, it's it's super helpful and it's it's a question that I've heard a lot from people, which is a combination of how do we how do we help people stay in their neighborhoods? And and it's not unrelated like why are so many people becoming homeless? So I'm going to take the first one and acknowledge that I'm not an expert on the second question. So let's start with the first one. California does not build enough housing and has not built enough housing, irrespective of even where we build housing, we don't build enough of it fast enough and haven't done so for the past 40 years. That's issue one. So what cities can do is, A, zone for more housing, and B, reduce its requirements, let's say, and the the process it takes to build housing. Like that's just whole cloth there, like that's what we can do. The other part in California is not allowed to do this. We um, other states have what's called a redevelopment authority, where cities actually have the ability to bring together disparate parcels of land, work directly with the developer, build whatever they want, you know, affordable housing mainly, alongside you know commercial space, you name it, and then use the tax increment that they would receive by reassessing those properties and reinvest that increment back to the, back into the communities we lost our redevelopment authority back in 2011 and a number of folks now especially housing advocate, affordable housing advocates have pointed out that this was a tool albeit with some challenges and you know impacts it was certainly a tool that produced a lot of affordable housing when and where we needed it so the second thing to sort of land that plane is to come back to that discussion and say if there were challenges with redevelopment authorities let's address those but let's not Do away with them altogether. So, now as a quick aside to your comparison about Oakland and New York, the irony here is that Oakland builds tons, or excuse me, New York builds tons of housing. And the difference here is that while certainly neighborhoods and and their demographics can shift, my understanding, and I I don't live in New York, so I don't want to make a wild assessment here, but I can make a mild comparison, is that. What we don't want to see is that people are both displaced from their homes because their rent goes up and they have to get kicked out or whatever, and that it is so challenging for them to find another home in the same neighborhood or even, like, nearby. That's what happens in the Bay, where when you are priced out, it's not like, okay, I'm just going to go find an apartment two blocks away. It's I have to find an apartment three cities away. And that is, like an enormous problem. And at one point, actually pre-pandemic levels, the going rent for Oakland housing was more expensive than New York. And I remember the day that that was reported. And And I've always, you know, I grew up thinking, New York is the most expensive place to live. And I think it was the New York Times and then um, San Francisco Chronicle pointed this out, kind of at the same time saying, the Bay Area is now more expensive than New York. And that is not a point of pride. And so... The comparison that I'm drawing here is that A, we need to build more housing. B, we need to offer more transportation options in the same way that New York has a subway system that will get you anywhere you want at generally any time you want. That's not something we have in the Bay. And to sort of bridge to your kind of second question about homelessness, I think that cities in general, and really this country in general, being as wealthy as it is, has the resources to support people at intersections in their lives where they need a little bit more help. And it's not just, and this is something we're piloting here in Oakland, is these sort of shallow subsidies where sometimes people lose their jobs and sometimes they don't have enough savings to carry them from one month to another. And when you look at statistics about why people became homeless in the first place, something like $500 to $1,000 is all they needed at one point in their life to keep them afloat to help them carry themselves from from one, you know, across a challenging issue. And we don't provide that. And the irony, of course, even just mathematically, let alone, you know, the the morality of helping our fellow neighbor, is that mathematically, it then costs us, us being, you know, the community at large, way more money to support folks who then become homeless is, you know, what, three or four to one cost after the fact. And so again, it's a combination just to land all these planes of in the air here, build more housing next to transit and support people in their time of need with these shallow subsidies so that you are able to help people stay in place as
0: long as you can. Really interesting around Oakland rent prices, and I guess I'm surprised in one hand and not in another, and I'd suggest any listener to go out there on Craigslist or some rental website and take a look at what the average one to two bedroom apartment costs, not necessarily in downtown San Francisco, uh, but even in some of those kind of satellite or bedroom communities, it's, it's a real eye opener.
1: And I will just add to your point, Jack, really quickly is that if you, for your listeners, if you go on to look at rents right now and compare them in Oakland and San Francisco, in some places in new buildings in Oakland, they are more expensive than San Francisco. That's amazing to me. Like, it is truly amazing to me that the cost of housing in the Bay, and and the idea that when I make the unfortunate mistake of traveling on an airplane and watching house hunters and looking at the cost of housing anywhere else, it just my jaw drops when I compare these prices.
0: And speaking from someone in New Zealand currently, I totally agree. It's a something we talk about a lot when we look at this huge mansion in South Carolina for uh, a quarter million dollars and compare yeah. that to, to what that would get us back home. So this kind of touches on a bit more of a macro trend that we're seeing more and more. The narrative of California kind of withering with centers like Colorado, like Austin, like Miami flourishing due to people supposedly fleeing California for a range of issues. Being kind of at ground zero is that valid
1: no <laughs> i don't think it is and and there's plenty of data to back up that that people are not moving out of central well so here's the the nuance that i think people are struggling with people are moving out of central cities some a little bit especially in the bay area in california where they are going is not necessarily colorado or texas even though some people are doing that, but somehow California still brings in more people, right? Like, and so the issue that we're, that we're really struggling with in California is that net, the, the people who are here and coming here and are able to remain in California are wealthier and wealthier. And we are the people we are losing are POC communities and our low income communities. So, I wouldn't say that California is withering in the, in the sense of especially the way that most people talk about like our economy certainly not. But when we think about the the racial and economic diversity that California is known for, I certainly believe that there is plenty of room for improvement in the ways in which we can support people living here in either one of those or both of those camps, whether you're, you know, a person of color and or someone who doesn't make as much money as you need to to, to sustain your livelihood and really your family's livelihood in California.
0: Are there any cities, maybe in California, maybe in the U.S., maybe across the world that you use as a bit of a model when you're going about your work? They've blazed a bit of a path when it comes to uh, equitable housing, sustainable transport, safer streets. What are some of those role model cities?
1: I think that Oakland, I'll answer your question a couple of ways because there are a lot of cities in both the United States and across the world. I don't know if any city has gotten all of it right. And and I will kind of describe to you a what's called a radar chart where you're trying to maximize lots of different um you know KPIs all at once. So you've got affordable housing, you've got clean transport, socioeconomic and demographic diversity, and by extension, and I think this is another part that that people often um forget about but it is a major reason what drives people to cities is freedom of expression and a welcoming attitude towards towards diversity and there are plenty of places that are very good at offering affordable housing that are not welcoming to different types of people right like texas has a lot of great low you know affordable housing and it is not exactly welcoming and I'm saying sweeping about Texas, so bear with me, listeners, but I I hope you'll understand what I mean here. There are plenty of places that are affordable that are not necessarily welcoming in general for people of color or queer people or disabled people, for example. And by extension, there are places that have great transport opportunities, let's use New York, that are not exactly affordable, but are exceptionally welcoming to a diverse milieu of people, right? And And there's the comparison, I think, of how you end up with places like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Expensive, great transportation options, all extremely welcoming. And I will say just sort of anecdotally from my own standpoint as a gay black man in Oakland, one of the major reasons I choose to continue to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and acknowledge that there are very few places I'm willing to live is that I want to feel safe. And welcomed as a, as a full person in all of my identities, wherever I go. And having shared that, that sort of thinking with a number of my friends, there, I think, is, is an acknowledgement, especially for people who live in these very expensive cities, is that it's not as if we don't know that there are cheaper cities we could move to. It's that there is a cost that we are paying for living in welcoming environments. And that's, that is a factor that I think cities often forget about when they are trying to grow and, and, and advance in competition with other locales. And so I, I challenge both your listeners and you know, any other planners or government bureaucrats out there to consider that KPI of like diversity and, and inclusion when you ask yourself, is my city succeeding in any one of these, these avenues or, or metrics? To answer your question, Jack, because I, I know I kind of sidestepped here. I don't think that there is a model city that has gotten every single one of these aspects right. I think that there are plenty of cities that have great transportation options. I'll use subways as that metric, whether that's, you know, Chicago, Los Angeles has completely rebuilt their light rail line. Let's look at New York, right? Even the San Francisco Bay Area has a pretty good subway system. When I think about, uh, you know, model bike facilities, let's talk about Portland, right? They're doing an amazing job. I think Oakland is really leading the way as well when i think about affordable housing there are plenty of places that just by happenstance are affordable but when you compare that to places that are intentionally building affordable housing with restrictions with protections then we might fall short right that's that is another challenge so i don't i don't think any city is doing a great job on that if and this is my sort of professional but even personal opinion about that so i hope that sort of answers your question as well as i can
0: Incredibly thought provoking. That idea of certain communities incurring a penalty effectively, because that's certainly something I've never thought about. Oakland exists in a, a major metropolitan area alongside a, a bunch of other cities. So, a big one San Francisco, but right beside you guys is Alameda, Berkeley, and others. And I'm curious to what extent is existing in this, I guess we could call it an urban web, butting up against all these other cities a collaborative or a competitive environment when it comes to city planning. What elements of your job benefit from this network effect of being right beside other cities? And what elements may be zero sum, if any? Yeah,
1: I think that in general, we're an incredibly collaborative bunch. And perhaps we're even a bit of a friendly competition. I know that when we in Oakland launched our Slow Streets program, there are plenty of cities around us that said, OK, how would you do that? How do we improve? You know, there is a really great opportunity, especially for city planners, we, and I, speaking for myself even, move around from one city to another, and we we try and bring that knowledge that we gain from each of these places with us. So I would say that in general, having that web of, of knowledge is, is fantastic, and it is certainly a collaborative aspect. When I think about both a competitive and even a zero-sum game, one of the challenges that Oakland faces, and this kind of gets fully back to the affordable housing aspects as well, is that... Oaklanders who live near freeways, so most Oakland, most of Oakland really, who live near, near freeways are bearing the consequences of people who are living outside of Oakland and driving through Oakland to get to San Francisco. And so one of the challenges that we face both in Oakland and by extension as a, as a region, a transportation region, is that who then bears the cost of addressing those impacts? It's Oakland, right? Oakland's smaller budget has to pay for the impacts, especially the environmental impacts, of people driving through Oakland. And that, that is a very challenging and expensive paradigm that we are facing. And, and that is, in fact, why I'm so happy that our Mayor Mayor Schaaf engages so thoughtfully at our regional planning level to pull more resources from the region to you know mitigate these types of impacts. Similarly, and this gets me again back to housing, is that when other cities do not build housing, it puts more pressure on cities like Oakland that want to welcome that housing and want to welcome more people, right? So Oakland's housing prices are in, are in direct relationship to San Francisco's ability or inability to build affordable housing where people want to work, which, you know, San Francisco is a job center. Similarly, and perhaps even more pointedly, Silicon Valley is a very expensive place to live that is almost entirely single-family zoning, individual lots with one house. And their choice to not provide affordable housing in their city then causes the rest of the Bay Area to have to absorb that cost. And then, ironically, and even tragically, we then have to absorb the cost of transporting these people back over to Silicon Valley each day for work. So that's, that's where when we do not think about our choices for building housing and what its effects are on, on our transportation choices, it has negative consequences for our neighbors.
0: So as a, a closing question, I wanted to ask you, what's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? I think
1: that local government often believes that if it hasn't happened, it means it can't happen. If we haven't done it before, it means we can't do it now. It means we can't do it in the future. And a major, <laughs> a major thrust of, of my effort, both in the city of Oakland and by extension my career, is to question why we think that way. Are we saying no to an opportunity because that we're afraid of the risk? Are we saying it can't happen because we've never done it before? And then to ask ourselves in reverse, why can't we? Why not? Why, why shouldn't we do this? Because otherwise, our answer should be yes. And that is, that is challenging, but it is certainly exciting. And I have, especially over the last year during COVID, been able to transform the way in which both my team and really broadly the city have been thinking about the ways we approach problem solving from one that is risk averse, one that is used to saying yes to how might we, why not? Let's try that and see what happens. And that's been incredibly rewarding.
0: Warren, I think it's been an amazing conversation, super thought-provoking personally with a ton, I think, to take away for both local government leaders and citizens. Really appreciate your time and please do keep up the awesome work in Oakland.
1: Thanks, I appreciate you having me.
0: It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.